0: When we interact with the world in which we live, sometimes I think as Christians, we find ourselves unnecessarily on the defensive. We sometimes act like perhaps um, we were ashamed or we hesitate or we don't speak out what we believe. We don't tell people what we think. We don't uh, put the Bible forward as truth and as a book which is believable, I think we probably ought to work a little harder at not doing that. I think we ought to go into the world and kind of challenge them. Put them on the defensive a little bit. Ask them what exactly their problem is with the Bible. This is a book which is incredibly believable. Luke is a very careful historian. We are studying the book of Luke and we're going to look at a fairly lengthy account this morning. Luke is going to present to us three witnesses to Jesus being who he says he is. Luke doesn't want to just present to us some kind of a fairy tale. This isn't a once upon a time. This is a person who has diligently studied, who has worked hard at putting together an account of how these events came to pass. He's deliberately trying to not necessarily copy uh, what Matthew has to say or what Mark had to say. Uh, He's trying to present his own view, like if you've had any kind of uh, legal training, you know that if, say, an accident occurs or some kind of event occurs and you talk to five people, chances are very good you're going to get five different stories. They were all there. They all watched the same event, and yet it's from five different perspectives. Well, same thing here with the Gospels. If the Gospels were all exactly the same, you might wonder if they got together and did some kind of colluding here to make sure they ironed out their differences. The very differences of the various Gospel accounts lends them even more credibility. So as we look at this, and as we look at the account in front of us here in chapter 2, um, Luke says, starting in verse 1, just as an introduction here, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed uh, down to us, it seemed fitting for me, that is Luke, as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order most excellent theophilies so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. The Bible, particularly the book of Luke, although obviously all of it, but particularly the book of Luke is a historical account of how this transpired. When people say to us, oh I don't believe the Bible. Really? Have you actually read the gospel of Luke? Have you read this? Because this is a book that challenges you to disprove it. Show me the historical inaccuracies in the book of Luke. Exactly what is it that Luke says that you find so unbelievable? Because Luke has diligently searched these events to present to us and for us an account that we can have absolute assurance in. We should go forth into the world and challenge them. You don't believe the Bible? Really? Disprove the, the gospel of Luke. Would you please? Would, would you be so kind? And let me open up to Luke chapter 2 and let me show you some stuff that's in there. Exactly which part of this is that you don't believe. He's going to talk to eyewitnesses. He's going to give accounts of people who are actually there. Uh, we see Zacharias who saw the angel and then his, his wife, Elizabeth, has this baby in her old age, Mary, the very mother of Jesus She had God speak to her, and Joseph married her, and the shepherds saw the angels in the sky. All of these people, are are they all liars? Every single one of them was a liar? Really? Based on what? Exactly what evidence do you have to put forward to, to call these people all liars? And we're going to look at three more. He presents three more accounts here in quick succession. Three more witnesses, three more people who are going to give a testimony to the authenticity of Jesus being exactly who he said he was. If God is going to send his own son into the world, we should be able to talk to the people who were around those events and see some rather interesting things happen. And, in fact, we do. So, not to re-preach the previous sermons, but Jesus is born... They're in Bethlehem. On the eighth day, he's circumcised, and they give him the name, Jesus. It would appear that what happens is, because of Mary and her health, and they're going to, they're going to go to the temple and to do the purification ceremony after the birth of Jesus, it, w- it would seem that instead of going all the way back to Nazareth, they just stay in Bethlehem. So they stay in Bethlehem so that they can actually bring him to the temple and to make sure that this is all done according to the law of Moses, specifically and directly. So they're not just going to have this done at the local synagogue. They're going to actually go to Jerusalem and have this done. Jesus is a special child. They're going to make sure that this is done correctly. So in verse 25... They, they go into the temple, and while they're in the temple complex, to get this done, they're, they're on their way to offer the sacrifice that they need to, to redeem Jesus as the firstborn of, of their family. As they're walking through the temple complex, there was this man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. We don't know anything else about this guy. He, there's no background, but he's there. And he was righteous, and he was devout. And he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So, as the parents who've got this child that they know is a special child, they're, you can imagine that they're kind of wondering how in the world this is all going to go. I mean, God has spoken to them. Um, God has clearly spoken to Mary. And Joseph has had an angel speak to him in a dream. And, and so they've gotten married. The child's been born. The shepherds showed up. I think they were a little surprised at that. Uh, We weren't aware that God was actually going to tell anybody else about this. Here come the shepherds saying that angels have talked to them. And that's that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, Moving forward with our lives here. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And we think we're probably just going to go in and do the sacrifice. Which, by the way, everyone who has a firstborn son would do a similar kind of sacrifice this is part of being a member of the nation of israel and i think they think they're just gonna go do this and then they're gonna go back to nazareth And if if i had to guess i think they would look at their son and think he's going to grow up to be a great political leader That was about as far as messianic ambitions went in that day and age. Even if they believed that their son was fully the Messiah, and I think they did, they thought somehow, some way or another here, he is going to rise to great political prominence. He's going to overthrow those horrible Romans who are ruling us and set up his kingdom. But honestly, how in the world we're going to get from this moment to that moment, we have have no idea we're not sure how in the world that's all going to happen but he's clearly the messiah and well as far as we know that's all the messiah is going to do in fact that is by the way if you read the gospels jesus continuously runs into that through his entire ministry his own disciples are thinking aren't you here to step the kingdom aren't you here to overthrow the romans isn't that your entire purpose for being here They even ask him that after the death and the resurrection. They still ask him that. So are you at this time going to set up the kingdom? We've been waiting this whole time for you to set up this kingdom. So his parents are very likely thinking the exact same thing. And yet here comes this guy named Simeon. He's righteous. He's devout. He's well known in the temple complex as a person who... One could only imagine he shows up there pretty regular. He's righteous and devout. And he's looking for the consolation of Israel. The comfort of Israel. Which is a really interesting term. And we could spend the rest of the morning talking about that. I'm not going to. But I'll mention some more about it. But it's a really interesting study to see this idea that the Messiah is going to be the paraclete. He's going to be the one who comforts us. In fact, when Jesus is ready to depart, he says, I've got to go, because if I don't go, I can't send the comforter. Same word. I can't send this comforter to you, which, of course, is the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus comes, he is the comforter, the consolation of Israel. He's going to come, and he's going to finally rescue us, which is why they keep thinking it's political. He's going to come, and he's going to to take care of us. We've been waiting for someone to come and take care of us. We've been waiting for someone to come and take care of the Romans. That's what we've really been waiting for. The Holy Spirit is upon him. So he is with the Spirit of God under the Old Covenant, but the Spirit of God is still with him. And he's correct to see Jesus as the one who is going to be the great comforter. If you want a a good study on this, go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 is a fascinating chapter. I, I could read the whole thing, I'm not going to, but it starts out with, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. And then it goes into this long discussion about the Messiah. It's a a discussion about who the Messiah is and the fact that God is the great God. He is the one who is going to rule and to reign and the idols are nothing. And God is the creator and all other gods are, are, they can't do anything. But God can. And God is going to walk into the temple complex. This idea of comfort, my people, it shows up in all kinds of places in the book of Isaiah. Um, He's going to say this. See if this sounds familiar. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be brought low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the message John preaches, right? That, and he's going right back to Isaiah to find that. This is the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah is this great comforting thing. Jesus will get up in his synagogue hometown synagogue in Nazareth, and the moment will come that he opens the book and he reads to them. Where does he read to them from? Isaiah. And what does he read? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closes the book. But the verse goes on to say, And the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And he closes the book because he's not ready yet to declare the vengeance of God. Not yet. It's coming. That will be his next coming. But at this point, he is there to comfort his people. And so when Simeon is going through the temple, the Spirit of God has said to him, Okay, this is the moment. You need to get down to that temple. The Messiah is there. You need to go find him. The great comfort of Israel is in our midst. And so, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And of course, when he sees the Lord's Christ, he's going to say, okay, I'm now ready to die, which indicates that he's probably along in years, you know, really old, probably in his 60s or something. He's, he's really old. This, this is a guy who's been waiting. And when he finally sees the Messiah, he's, he's going to say, oh, okay, now you can release your bondservant. I'm, I'm ready to depart in peace. I have seen your Messiah. So he shows up and here are the parents. Here's Jesus. And verse 27, he comes in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the, Christ, the child Jesus to carry him to carry out for him the custom of the law. He takes him in his arms and blesses God. Here, let me, let me, it's like me, you know, kind of a baby hog, you know. If you have a baby and I get near you, it's actually kind of likely I may ask if I can hold your baby. I love babies. We had three. I love my grandkids. I have eight of those. I just cannot wait to hold babies. That is just great. They are, anyway, so, he, can you imagine holding Jesus? Can you imagine? And he knew who he was. This is the Messiah. And he takes him up in his arms and he says, now, Lord, you can let me die. I can die a happy man. I can die in peace. I have now held your Messiah. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation, even to the Gentiles, and a glory to your people, Israel, I have seen the Savior. I've, I'm holding the Savior in my arms. Could you imagine? Can you imagine? And I want you to look at that account and I want you to be able to go into the world and to talk to people about it. Do you think this guy's a liar? You think he's a fake? You think he's a fraud? How in the world can anybody say that? Do you think Luke was lying when he wrote this? Everything in this account rings true. This is a godly, righteous guy. Do you think Luke could have got away with writing this with his contemporaries who all knew who this guy was? Everyone who read this gospel, how do you think this thing got copied over and over and widely distributed so that we have a copy of it to this very day? Because people believed it. And they believed it at the time Luke wrote it. And they knew these people. There were people alive at the time who watched Simeon take Jesus in his arms. So I've seen your Christ. I've seen your salvation. And by the way, here he includes us, a light unto the Gentiles. I'm really glad about that, since I'm not Jewish, and as far as I know, none of you are either, although someone here might be. Jesus is going to be our Savior too. Understand that at the time he says this, I suspect right there in the temple complex, people who heard him may have scratched their head and said, I wonder what he means by that. What do you mean a light unto the Gentiles? We're supposed to be conquering. Isn't he coming to to overthrow the Gentiles? I great confusion over all of that. They can quite put that all together, but he's speaking by the power of the Spirit of God. That's why he would say such a thing, because God, of course, knows exactly what he's going to do, which is bring the gospel to us. His father and his mother, verse 23, are just amazed. Really? Is that? Wow. I mean, we know he's a special child. We we understand that. But to act for God to send someone right here in the temple, we were kind of trying to sneak in here and stay under the radar. I mean, we weren't looking to, hey, our son's the Messiah. That no, they're just kind of coming in. And here this guy comes up. Okay, apparently God has decided to put his stamp on the child from an infant, literally. God is not just at work the parents. God is not just at work in their life. God is at work in the lives of everyone around them. And I think it's often surprising. We tend to think that God's at work in our life, but we're not so sure God's at work in everybody else's life. Oh, oh yes, yes, he is. God is at work in the lives of everyone. And we should assume that. In fact, when you share the gospel with people, assume that God is working on calling them unto himself, because he is. God has a relationship with every person on this planet. So don't think that it's just you. You're doing God's work when you share the gospel. So Simeon now blesses the child and blesses them, the parents, and says to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. Oh, and by the way, Mary, a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Up to this point in Luke's book, it's all been great, good, glorious, marvelous things we're looking at victory and we're looking at the coming of the Messiah and isn't it all wonderful and comfort of our sins and we're going to have great light into the darkness and compassion and forgiveness and the Messiah is here and he's going to overthrow the Romans and it's all going to be great. Uh, Are you sure? Because now Simeon is going to state very clearly that Jesus is set for a sign for not just the rise but the fall of many. And he is going to be assigned to be opposed. Wait a minute, this is the Messiah. There's going to be opposition? Really? Who in the world could possibly oppose the Messiah? Who's going to oppose him? Hmm. Yeah, let's see. Who's going to oppose him? The very people who are standing in that temple at that moment, who 30 years, give or take, in the future from this time, are going to be in charge of the place they're going to be the people that will oppose him. They will be the people who will crucify him. Why? Because when he stands up and when he speaks, he will reveal the hearts and the thoughts of many people. Jesus, when he finally shows up, is going to look at these people who, by the way, if you're in the temple complex... Uh, you're going to know, Simeon, you're certainly going to know the next person we see, which is Anna. Uh, she lived in the temple complex. She's, an, at, by that time, an older woman. And she lives in the temple complex and does nothing but stay there uh, as a widow and fasts and prays for people. We'll get to her in a second. They all knew who she was. If you were, say, in your 30s and were a priest in the temple complex, which is the age at which they got going on that... You would have known Anna, you would have known Simeon, you probably were there for this set of events. You certainly would have known when the wise men show up, which we'll get to here shortly. All of these things should have all kind of worked together for you. And you should have said to yourself, you know, I wonder who in the world this kid is and and what's going to happen to him. You would have known about Zacharias, who would have been a priest along with you. And you would have known that he got a child in his old age when he should have been too old to have kids. And you would have said to yourself, I wonder who who that child is. And so when John the Baptist bursts out on the scene, everybody in their 60s who would have been in their 30s at the time these kids were born they would have now been the people in charge. They were the people in the Sanhedrin. They were the guys who were leading the country. All of them should have said, oh, this is who these guys turned out to be. You know, we kind of wondered who this Jesus guy was going to be and who this John guy was going to be. Uh, we knew their names. We, they told us what their names were. We, we, okay, what did they say to these people? You bunch of snakes and vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, is that who they turned out to be? Yeah, no, we got to get rid of these guys. The fact is, they should have repented. They had every reason to repent. They had every reason to look and say, God was at work in our midst. And we never even recognized it. Jesus will call them exactly that on a number of occasions. In fact, By Matthew 23, after he's finally got all opposition quiet, he's finally got them to stop arguing with him. He's got them to the place where he has asked them enough questions publicly and put them on the spot that they couldn't answer them, that that no one dares ask him another question. And so in chapter 23, he gets up and actually teaches the people the truth. And he just blisters these guys. Why? Because they are false. They are false teachers and false prophets and they're leading the people astray and they do not understand God and they do not understand who he is and there was every reason why they should have. They were there for these events. They were there in the temple complex when, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus in. They watched Simeon. There, when we get to her, Anna. They, they heard Anna. So let's, let's get a look here. Verse Verse 36, so here Jesus, uh, here Simeon has prophesied about Jesus and a prophetess, uh, the daughter of Phanul of the tribe of Asher. She comes in and she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was then a widow to the age of 84 years old. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at the very moment in which Simeon had taken Jesus up in his arms, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. That's who she is. If you were looking for the redeemer, that's him. Now, obviously, the, the people who are the young guys at the time, 30s, they watched all of this, they saw all of this these would have been events that should have been transformative. They should have said, God is at work in our midst. God is doing great things in our midst. We should expect great things out of these guys. Mary, by the way, one could only imagine, after what Simeon said to her, that you know, your soul is going to be pierced. One can only wonder what she thought about that. But of course, we... No, having the full story, we watch that as Jesus gets older, and we're going to look at just a second when he was 12 years old, by 12 years old, he's putting distance between himself and his mom. And of course, we know that as an adult, he will, at the wedding of Canaan, she'll come to him and say, hey, they are out of wine, you should do something. And he uses a very formal term to speak to her. He doesn't call her mom, it's like, excuse me my dear woman I and mean, to his own mother so that would be a rough translation of what he basically said to her and it's like you know it's really not your place to start telling me when i'm going to get my ministry going here that's really one can imagine you know how it is when you're the mom and your kids grow up it's really tough to let your kids grow up you don't want to do that i mean you've been telling them what to do for 20 years you know it's Raise them to be independent and think for themselves, but not disagree with you. How dare you? Yeah. So she had to face that same thing. And of course, the time came when Jesus was teaching and the house was so packed and they thought, this guy is out of his mind. And so mom grabbed his brothers to go in and to rescue him. They're going to do an intervention, you know, and and they say, hey, Jesus, your mother and sister uh, brothers are outside. And he looks at the crowd and says, who are my mother and my brethren?" You are. Just wait till they tell his mom he said that. But that is the truth. The bonds that Jesus has with those who believe are stronger than the bonds he has with his own family. So here's Anna running around saying to everyone, you know, we've been looking for redemption. This is the Redeemer. Okay, next incident here. So they performed everything according to the law of, of the Lord. They're there to redeem their firstborn son, which there's a previous sermon you can read and see that. And they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, you may say, since I mentioned them, well, wait a minute, we're the wise men. What happened to the wise men? Well, uh, the wise men, of course, um, occur in Matthew. The fact is that God does not give us a lot of information about the childhood of Jesus. Probably because if you've read, anybody who's tried to write about the childhood of Jesus, you already get going on, whoa, you know, they might have been better off to not write that book. That is just really launching off into all kinds of, where'd you get those crazy ideas? And so God doesn't, he just doesn't tell us. There's not a whole lot about the childhood of Jesus. But if you look at the book of Matthew and you look at the book of Luke, Luke says, I tried to not duplicate stuff that had already been written. So Luke brings up some different things that are not in, say, the book of Matthew. Matthew talks about the wise men. So what happens? There's no definitive timeline, but it would appear that what occurs is that they go back to Nazareth, and by the time they've listened to Simeon, by the time they've listened to the shepherds, by the time they listen listened to Anna, and they put this all together, it seems very reasonable that they said, you know... This child is, and this is a pretty amazing child, he, he really is the son of David. We should probably see about raising him in the city of David. So they probably went back to Nazareth. It doesn't specifically say this, but they probably went back to Nazareth, packed up all their stuff, and came back and lived in Bethlehem. Because within two years, the wise men will show up. And when the wise men show up, they will go to the house. They're living in a house in Bethlehem. They're not, the wise men don't show up, uh, despite what you may see in pictures or any kind of displays you may see at Christmas time. No wise men over there in the stable. Sorry, I don't want to ruin anybody's Christmas, but the wise men don't show up until later. He's not in the stable anymore. He's in a house. And it's probably because they've decided to live in Bethlehem and to raise him there. But what happens, and we know what happens, because Matthew lays it out for us very clearly the wise men will show up and here's another interesting thing the wise men show up and begin asking in jerusalem where is he that is born king of the jews and you would think that they'd go huh this must be that kid that that well simeon talked about and anna talked about and we heard the shepherds you would think they'd connect the dots They're still like they're still just oblivious uh well i don't know well it's something about bethlehem i mean it's Back there, it's not like we're reading Daniel and actually paying attention or anything, uh, which would probably explain why they just have no idea. Which is why Jesus grows up and calls them a bunch of snakes and vipers. Because they're really not studying the Word of God. They're only in charge of the temple and the temple complex because they can use that to get money out of the people who show up which is why he calls them all snakes and vipers. It's like, you've taken my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. You guys aren't even studying the scriptures, because if you were, you'd know who I was, and you'd, you'd repent. They, they, they don't repent. So anyway, the wise men show up, and of course, when they get there, uh, they go and find Mary and Joseph, and they get the dream, and, and of course, they talk to Herod, and they go a different way, and Mary and Joseph are like, okay, we better get out of here. We, we better run. And so they do. And, of course, the wise men now have left them enough funds for the gifts that they've given them so that they can, in fact, flee to Egypt. So they do. They, they go to Egypt, and they have the money to do that. But when they bring Jesus into the temple back here in Luke, and they offered, they offered the smallest offering that you would give if you were really poor, the two turtle doves. Well, that's because the wise men haven't shown up yet. They haven't seen the wise men. If they had seen the wise men, they would have had lots of money. The wise men brought great gifts. What would they do with all that money? They ran to Egypt with it. And they stayed there to live off of that until Herod died. And then God appears to them and says, okay, it's safe to go back. And when they go back, they don't go back to Bethlehem. Like, yeah, it's kind of it's a little dangerous living in Bethlehem. I think we're just going to go back to Nazareth. So they do. They go back to Nazareth. Now, verse 41. All that has happened. His parents go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Annual feast, everybody goes. And when Jesus was now 12, they went up with them, with, uh, there according to the custom of the feast And as they were returning, we we go up, we do the Passover. Now we're going to go back. After spending the full number of days, Jesus stays in Jerusalem. He's 12 years old. Next year, he's going to be 13, his bar mitzvah. He's going to be a recognized adult in the nation. So, got to get some preparation for that. His parents, okay, have you ever done this? Have Have you ever done this as a parent? We did this. You know, generally, it's not until you get three kids, you know, two kids, one for each hand, or one for each of you, but by the time you get three, you're outnumbered. It's, you're, you're done. You get three kids, you, you, there's always one of them you can't keep track of, somehow or another. My wife and I, we, we had a Sunday night service, and we did Awana, and we went around and picked up kids all over the neighborhood and went to this Awana. And so I drove off in one car, and she drove off in another car, and we met up at Awana, and we unloaded the cars. And the and said, where's Cinnamon? She said, I was going to ask you the same thing. And we got looking at it, all the kids in the car, and we're like, "Oh my!" So my wife gets in the car and heads back to the house, which wasn't too far away. And she gets back there, and the house is completely dark. And she goes in, and there's our youngest daughter sound asleep, which, because you know she wasn't very old, and she'd have been pretty unhappy. And my wife wakes her up, and she's like, "Where is everybody?" "Oh, they're just at the church," you know. Um, if you haven't done that yet, and you're sitting there judging me harshly, um, you know. <clears throat> Let me tell you, it happens. So it happened with them. Mary's like, hey, I thought he was with you. Joseph's like, well, I thought he was with you. Can't find of out he's not with anybody. Well, where is it? So they get running around. They can't, they can't find him. I mean, he's 12, but still 12's not that old. And uh, so they go back. They, they, they're a day's journey out. It's a day's journey back. They get back. They get hunting around. They can't find him. And so they return to Jerusalem. And after three days, you know, probably a day out a day back and a day looking so after three days they they finally find him in the temple so so where is jesus well you know they got this kid up there in the temple i mean is that him because he's really making an impression i gotta tell you so they, they go in and they find him and he's sitting there in the midst of the teachers and these are the very guys by the way who were there with Anna, and we're there, you know, the same group of guys. And by the way, when Jesus comes back at 30 and calls them a bunch of snakes and vipers, probably some of these guys are in that same group. And you would think that what's happening here is God is giving them all the evidence they need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So he's sitting there, and he's listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Well, yeah, you're talking to God here. So when they saw him, his parents, they were astonished. His mother said to him, why have you treated us this way? She's acting like a mom, right? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Yeah, I you know. And he said to them, you were looking? Why were you looking? Didn't, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And by the way, Joseph doesn't live here? I mean, Jesus knows exactly who he is. And oh, by the way, they know exactly who he is too. Really, this should not have been difficult to put together. But they didn't put it together. In fact, they didn't understand the statement which he made to them. This just doesn't, wait, I don't, now we, in the ebb and flow of life it is easy to forget that God is at work this is one of the reasons by the way I I I hope it's one of the reasons why you're here we need a continual reminder oh that's right God is at work in my life I mean I don't know I had a difficulty I had a hardship I had some kind of tragedy happen to me and you know I wonder what God if he had abandoned me God has not abandoned you how does it work in your life? We need to be constantly reminded of that or we forget. Okay, his own parents forgot. Oh, that's right. This kid is the son of God, not the son of Joseph. So he went down with them and went to Nazareth and he continued to be in subjection to him. And his mother, she treasures these things in her heart. I mean, she She's trying to put this together. She is trying to be a godly woman. She is trying to figure out what in the world God is up to. But it is just puzzling. It is hard to determine exactly what God is doing. But God is doing. And God is at work in our life. God is at work in your life right now in this moment as the word of God is being open to you and as you're hearing it and as God is speaking to you, not just me, it's not me speaking to you, it's God through his word. Believe this book. This entire account that we just saw, absolutely believable. Everything in it is believable. This is the word of God. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some once upon a time. This is an account that you can literally stake your life on hopefully you are. That's why it's here. You don't have to throw away your brains to be a Christian. You don't have to make some leap into the dark. This is a book which lays out for us very clearly the life of Christ, and it is totally believable. And we can completely put our faith and trust in it, and should. God is at work in their life, and Part of looking at them and seeing their puzzlement and their, their difficulty putting it all together hopefully allows us to kind of go, yeah, I know right where they're coming from. I find myself wrestling with exactly what God is doing in my life too. Even though I know God is at work in my life, it can be confusing. It can be challenging. It can be difficult. But know this, God is at work in your life. And God will, in fact, get everything done that he needs to get done. Jesus will become who he needs to become. His mother will, exactly like it said, her her very soul will be pierced as she watches her son die. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This was supposed to be the Messiah. I don't think she understood it any better than any of the rest of them. Wait, my son was supposed to be the ruler of Israel. How in the world could he possibly be hanging there by these wicked, cruel people? How, how can this be happening? And I suspect it did pierce her soul. But when it was all done, God did do exactly what God was going to do, and Jesus did what he had to do. God is at work in our life too. So if there's challenges, if you're facing difficulties, hardships, it's okay, God is in the midst of them. It's all right, count it all joy when you fall into various and sundry trials and temptations. The trying of your faith simply works patience. Be more patient. Wait for God to do what God's going to get done. God is at work. God hasn't abandoned us. God hasn't left us. And he hasn't given us all the answers we want. He's given us some. He gave them some. God loves you and is at work in your life. Believe it. Live like it. And just watch. Just watch. God is going to get great things done. He's going to transform the world and he's going to use us right in the middle of that. Believe it, live like it. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word, for its honesty. Thank you, Lord, that you record the challenges that the people around your son had, uh, the people Didn't understand fully what he was trying to do. Didn't understand fully how this was working. There was a lot of light, but there was also a lot of questions. That is how it is, Lord. That is how you work. Your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so it requires some faith for us to believe that you were at work. May we exercise that. But at the same time, you provide all that we need to know that you are, in fact, at work, and that all things do work together for good to those who love you. So may we love you. May you use our lives. May we boldly go forth into the world declaring that your word is true. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.